Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right. Part of the reason that I did the part of the reason I did balloons at the beginning of the service is because that's the last that's the last bit of fun we're going to have today. Uh, we're starting a series. We're starting a series on going moving towards Easter um, called the Faces of Easter. And I'm looking at a different character each week in the Easter narrative and what, what um, we take out of their story. And I'm going to start with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're going to talk about suffering. So these balloons are the end of it, okay? Uh, because when I, when I thought about Mary, and in ways that I'd never really thought about Mary before, I thought, man, like, she lost her son. Like, that's horrible, what Mary had to go through. And Mary, we're going to find out, Mary knew it um, the whole time, and God knew God knew it. God told Mary what was going to happen the whole time. And, um, and so that's what this message really engages, uh, that we're going to suffer, that God knows what's going on, um, but that God gives us what we need uh, to deal with that. And that's just hard. Like it's, we don't like suffering. How many of you like to suffer? Right. Like we have psychiatric terms for you if you like to suffer um, because it's not normal to like to suffer. Uh, I don't like to, I don't like to suffer. I don't like to preach about suffering. I was thinking about this and I, I go to, I give blood on a pretty regular basis because I had heart surgery a few years ago. And so I'm going to have to have heart surgery again. And cause they give you free stuff every once in a while when you give blood, I'm going to be honest, like it's taken a lot to get me to do that. But when you go get blood, what do they do? First off, they take, yeah, they check your iron by sticking your finger. That is the worst part of giving blood is when they stick your finger and it's going to hurt for like five seconds. And every time I'm like, I'm going to leave because I don't want to go through this five seconds of suffering, even though like I can save somebody's life, but I don't want to do it. We just don't, we don't like it. Um, we don't like suffering. When I was thinking about preaching about suffering, I'm like, I don't want to preach about suffering. And then I thought about how many people over the past several months have been suffering. Like everyone's suffering at some level, but suffering at deep levels, maybe in ways um, that I haven't seen folks suffer in the church the whole time that we've been a church. Uh, People are just going through it. Like people that have been out of work for long periods of time that has created, um, you know, a climate for suffering. People dealing with illness or chronic illness. People dealing with uh, death in their family. People just dealing with sin. Uh, their own sin or the sin of the people around them that's creating uh, great suffering. And I thought, well, okay, it makes sense why God uh, might me, have me preaching this message. I, um, I was thinking about this in terms of Lent. How many people do anything for Lent? Uh, I, I have not gravitated towards Lent. Like, there's a reason we don't do much for Lent. And, um, and part of it, I grew up around a lot of Catholic folks that did a lot of things without having any idea why they were doing them. And so I, I think we have an aversion uh, for that. And, so, and Lent is not a, a completely biblical idea. Like you're not going to look in the Bible and find Ash Wednesday or 40 days to prepare for Easter or any of that. But it is, it's from the earliest days of the church and it's based on biblical like motifs, I guess I would say. So the 40 days of Lent is 40 days of preparation to celebrate Easter. And the 40 days does come from 40 days of Jesus in the desert, um, you know, being prepared for his ministry. 
Uh, Moses being on Mount Sinai for 40 days before he gets the law. Elijah having a 40-day trek to Mount Oreb. So there are 40 days of preparation that the early church fathers took and said, let's take 40 days to prepare for Easter. And as a part of that, for Lent, you give up something. And so that is a form of self-induced suffering. Uh, But it's self-induced suffering so that you could grow closer to the Lord. Um, And I think Like for some folks, it's a self-induced suffering so that you can earn God's favor. Like you give something up and earn some brownie points with the Lord, which is anti-gospel and the exact wrong reason to do anything. It's meant to be that you give something up and in that space, you realize uh, your need for the Lord, your longing for the Lord, and maybe your lack of longing uh, for the Lord. You know, like you give up a comfort that is taking place of the real comfort that the Lord is supposed to offer you, whether that be social media or TV or alcohol or sugar. I actually am doing Lent this week with a group of pastors that I meet with. And I'm realizing, man, there's some things that I really want. And I wonder if I want them more than I want Jesus. And that's the self-induced suffering is bringing me to that point. And so in a way, that's where this message gets to, um, is that God uses He's going to use suffering in your life and he's going to use suffering to draw you closer to him. And he's going to use suffering to make you more like him. Uh, And that's a reality that you find throughout the Bible. So let me start here with Mary and uh, the scene where we see uh, Mary in the, in the Eastern narrative. And it's John chapter 19 and reads like this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that said they divided my garments among them, and after my clothing, they cast lots. So we don't see Mary there. Let's just stay there. We don't see Mary there. I started with this uh, passage because I, I just wanted to get like we're cannonballing into Easter, right? We're a few weeks out, but we're on Good Friday here. Uh, Jesus is already on the cross. Um, we're there. We're going straight to it. And you've got soldiers that are casting lots. They're, they're gambling. They're rolling dice for Jesus' clothes while his mom is right there. And so, you know, when someone passes, you are careful with what you say to them and how you interact with them. But here you've got this scene where maybe the most callous thing you could imagine somebody doing and Jesus' mom is right there. It says the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, uh, the disciple took her to his own home. And so um, you've got the scene where she is uh, watching her son die while the soldiers are, you know, they just don't care. And, um, And you've got Jesus' last words to his mother, which are like words of care and concern. You know, like to his best friend, hey, take care of her. Uh, This is now your mother. And to his mother, this is now your son. And I think I've always kind of passed by that scene without thinking about the dynamics that are going on in it. Uh, But it's a horrible scene. Death is hard in any circumstance. I don't imagine that death is any harder than when a parent has to bury their child. Um, 
we haven't had, we haven't experienced a lot of, of death within our body as a church over the time that we've been a church. Much of what we've experienced has been parents burying their children. We had a family here a few years ago that um, they moved back home to Connecticut. And, and a couple years after they moved back to Connecticut, their six-year-old daughter, who we knew as a toddler, uh, Maven, passed away from brain cancer. And a handful of us walked through that with them and went up um, to be a part of the funeral with them and just, you know, felt the pain that they went through. We had a family here that buried, they, their son passed away a couple hours after he was born and they knew for months that that was the likely outcome of the situation. And so as a church, we prayed with them and walked alongside them for months uh, going through this. And it was horrible, like it, tragic, horrible. We have a family here just in the last few months um, that lost an adult son uh, who took his own life. And so a family has been you know, a lot of us have been walking alongside this family. They've lost a son and they've lost a brother. Uh, we have the funeral here is horrible. And another um, family, a woman who's here this morning who lost her 38-year-old son to, a, you know, chronic, chronic illness that took his life. And we also had that service here. And so we've seen her walking through that. We have, I don't, we don't even know how many families that have lost children to miscarriage. And that's parents that have lost children. Um, it's a, this is a horrible scene. Jesus is dying an unjust death at the hands of lawless men. He's endured six bogus trials. He's had people provide false testimony against him. And that's got him on a cross. Mary is powerless to do anything about it, but watch. Uh, if you're a parent, imagine yourself being in that situation. It would kill you. Uh, if I was in that situation, I would just think I would be crawling out of my skin. I'd feel like I'd failed my child. I was thinking through this and I thought about, uh, you know, who John Walsh is. Remember the show America's Most Wanted? So, you know, they, they put out their situations. It's over, 12, over 25 years, they solved 1,200 cases and got 60 missing children returned to their homes. You know his story? His six-year-old son was abducted and killed. And in the wake of that, he became suicidally depressed. His uh, wife and he opened a center for exploited and missing children. And that led to the TV show that led to 1,200 cases getting solved and 60 children being returned. It was the rage and the emotion fueled by the unjust death of a child that led to all of that. Like that's the emotion that's in this scene as Mary is at the foot of the cross. He said, it's in our DNA not to bury our children, no matter what their age. The scar cracks open at birthdays or Christmas, or when you look at pictures, you try to fight back to work, but you feel like you've been hit by a train and then you function. That's Mary. That's Mary. Now let me back up. And what do we know about Mary? Um, you know, a few things. Mary was chosen, right? God chose Mary. Mary was a small town girl. Mary had no pedigree for what God got her involved in. Mary didn't aspire to any of this. Um, and then all of a sudden she's in the Christmas story for all of eternity, right? But from out of nowhere, Mary was, was deep. Um, 
you read about Mary. So Mary's a teenager when the angel comes to her in Nazareth and says, hey, all this stuff's going to happen. And this is how that scene plays out. He came to her. The angel came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I want to think if an angel came to me this afternoon, like kind of viscerally and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I'd be like, sweet. You know? She, she was troubled. Like, that's a thinker right there. It's like, what could this possibly mean, you know? Or maybe she was just really smart because she knew it was coming. Um, in Nazareth, there are two holy sites for Mary. Like, there's the big one, but then down the street, they got a little marker that says, this is where the angel came to her first, and she ran up the street to the second site. So the way they recorded is this happened, and then she ran away, and then the angel had to chase her down, and then the next part of the verse happens. So the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, and he'll be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Which again, like, whoa, her response, how are you going to do that? You know, (laughs) like, how's that going to happen, angel? Uh, She's just a, like, she's a thinker. Um, She, uh, when the the shepherds come, you know, after Jesus is born, it says that they, she ponders everything that has gone on. When she goes to the temple, when Jesus is eight days old, and they see Anna and they see Simeon, it says that she marvels. At what he had said. She's not naive. She's just a teenage girl and she's not naive. She's deep. And, and most of our teenagers are probably a lot deeper than we give them credit for. She's devout. So this is, um, a, um, like a song, a poem that she wrote called the Magnificat when she was with her cousin Elizabeth. And so this is her reflection on what's going on. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's sown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's a teenager that, that put that out there, you know? Like she's devout and she's deep and she's strong. Mary is strong. She is a, a Nazareth is a small town. Uh, that was a shotgun wedding, right? There's sketchy, like how all, she ends up pregnant and there's Joseph and he wants to put her away. But the angel comes to him like in a small town, people talk. And that has to follow you. And so there's a strength to what she has to go through. Um, She has at least six other kids that the Bible records. Joseph is not in the Jesus story. And so um, people assume that Joseph, you know, died young. And so she may have spent some of that time as a single mother with young children. She, uh, the story of Jesus' first miracle is when he turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And you get a glimpse into the strength of her personality. I love this scene. So it's a wedding and she is going and she brings Jesus and Jesus brings 
uh, the disciples with them. So they're all at this wedding. The wedding would be a week-long deal. And it says that the couple that's having the wedding ran out of wine. And so then, and so it says that the wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. This is the most passive aggressive statement in the Bible, right? Hey, Jesus, they have no wine. This begs all sorts of questions. Like, why did she think Jesus could do anything? It's his first miracle. So how does she know that Jesus has the ability to do something about this? And, um, and Jesus, Jesus like, Hey, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Ixnay on the wine or however that stuff goes, you know, like, I don't want any part of this. My time hasn't come yet. And then the, she doesn't even respond to him. Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to. Like, it's a fantastic scene. And um, I think Jesus is like, well, mom ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy. I'll do it. Just bring me the jars. We'll work this out. Uh, but there's, like, I love her. There's just a strength to her personality. Um, but Mary suffers. This, this is the scene. Jesus is eight days old. They bring him to the temple. Um, there's all sorts of people in the temple. And these two, Anna and Simeon, these two old folks just come up to him and just, they're like, now I can die because I've seen the savior of the world in this eight day old baby. Like you have to imagine how you'd respond to that. And Simeon is the old guy and he says some stuff to him. And then, and then the follow up, the end of it is this, it says his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, you just picture this scene, old guy looking her young teenage mom in the eye. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. She knew this day was coming. Um, so there's a little like, it's a little bit like a horror movie. You know, the energy from a horror movie comes from the fact that you know something really bad is going to happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. And so it's the tension that builds. And she's got this the entire life of Jesus. She knows that. I read this, um, you know, these, I don't, make too much of these things, but they fascinate me. A near-death experience of a woman who was a doc, she's a doctor, like uh, nominal faith, has a near-death experience in a kayaking thing where she ends up trapped underwater for eight minutes or something like that. And, and then when she, in that, she is told that her, one of her children is going to die early but not to say anything about it. And she records this, like she wrote a book about it. I can find it for you if you want, but she knows what's going to happen. And you can only imagine living in that existence. And so Mary, the few years before the cross, sees the ups and downs of his public ministry. She sees the hatred of the religious leaders growing towards him. Um, she's she's got to be close to Jesus. Jesus didn't marry you know, we don't know what happened between when Jesus was 13 and 30. For all we know, Jesus, like, lived with his, his mom the whole time. Like, they're, they're close. And now she's at the foot of the cross. And her son is dying. And the soldiers are callously gambling for his clothes. And the religious leaders are gloating. And the crowds have just played the fool and led to this point. Uh, she has to flash back to Simeon's speech and know this is what he was talking about. 
And God knew it the whole time. God knew it the whole time. That's a complicated existence. But in some way, Mary's existence and our existence is the same existence when it comes to suffering. Because we're going to suffer, and God knows it. God knows it. Let me say um, a handful of things. I'm just going to go through a handful of principles about suffering. And I'll start here. We are really bad at suffering. Amen? Yeah. We don't like it. I would, I would almost venture to say if we like really sat down and thought through it, one of our greatest goals in life is to avoid suffering as much as is humanly possible. We protect ourselves from suffering as much as we can. And it might be like harder to resist that in our day and age than it has been in any day and age. Like in our culture, it's hard not to like build a life around gaining comfort and avoiding discomfort. It's right in our founding documents is that we have the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's our divine right is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have so much physical affluence that we have the illusion of control. There's so much physical affluence that we have the illusion of control. And even if it's not our physical affluence, other people have it. And so we think we could have that. And then their life must be perfect, like social media, right? We put that out there and think they don't suffer from anything. And so we live in this illusion that we can avoid it in ways that I'm not sure anybody's ever lived. I think everybody's had that illusion, but, ever, but not like us. And it can come from anywhere, you know, your job, your finances, your physical health, the death of those around you, um, unmet expectations, uncontrollable children, parents who didn't play their part the way that they were supposed to, bad bosses, whatever it is. It can come from anywhere. I was listening to a podcast, and I think I mentioned this a few months ago, where the, it was a pastor that was talking about how he's made this comment that life is a series of unlamented losses. And so we experience different types of loss, but we don't really take the time to process it and to grieve it. And so we're walking around unhealthy and wounded because we don't really know how to deal with it because we just don't deal with it because we experience it um, a lot. And so we're bad at it. You cannot avoid suffering. We cannot avoid suffering. Um, I, could, I could talk a lot about Genesis right now, but, but we're not going to, right? But the Bible says we live in a fallen world, and this is why we suffer. And the problem isn't the world. The problem is, is us, that we're broken people, rebellious people, sinful people, and we, we live among broken, rebellious, sinful people. And the greatest source of suffering will probably be the people closest to us, because we know and experience each other's sin the best in small ways and in big ways. And our fundamental problem is a rebellion against God, against his authority over us, and against his plan for us. And that may, if, you, if you've never been here or you haven't been in church in a while, that may sound harsh. I'd ask you to give me a few weeks and like, this is just kind of the gospel. This is where the gospel um, comes out of. And ask you a few questions. Do you think, we'd have to sit down to go through this, but I'm going to go through it quickly. Do you think God is smarter than you? But do you live like you think God is smarter than you or that you are smarter than God? Because we live like we think we are smarter than God. Um, do you seek God's will for your life each day? Uh, does the way you live your life demonstrate that you trust him more than you trust yourself? 
And the answers to those questions, if we went through it with a fine-tooth comb, is going to show that we are in rebellion against him. It may be a polite rebellion, we think, but it's a rebellion against him. And so that, much of our suffering, like that's where it comes from. It, but, but then we live in a world that's in the midst of that. And so we can't avoid it. And there are consequences to shaping your life to avoid suffering. That's a form of making yourself God, thinking that you can avoid it. It's its own form of rebellion. And so you can, we, but we have that illusion. We can get in a place financially or with our health or with our job or with our kids or with our friends where we have things just the way we want them to be. And then they're going to stay that way forever. And we make an idol out of that. We make that our God and we organize our life around that protection. And in that, we stop really following the God who said you have to lose your life to save your life. Like I'm the one that's in control. And so give up that illusion of control that you have. We can't avoid it. God is sovereign over your suffering. This is going to get a little harder. God is sovereign over your suffering. Um, God knows. God chose Mary to suffer in this way. He told her about it when Jesus was born. He chose her to suffer in this way. He chose Jesus for the suffering that Jesus went through. Uh, this is a verse in Acts that, that I just continue to find incredible. So this is Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died, risen, ascended to heaven, told the, the church to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's come, and now Peter's preaching the first sermon, and thousands of people are going to trust in Jesus as a result of this sermon. And this is just a snippet of it. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was delivered up by the definite plan and the foreknowledge. God knew about it and God ordained it, but you did it in rebellion against God like in his laws. Go ahead with your, your Big Mac size brain and try and figure that out, right? You're not going to. We're not going to. And there are things about suffering that we are not going to figure out. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the Old Testament story of Joseph at the, the end of Genesis Joseph is the 11th of 12 brothers. He is um, kind of the irritating little brother. And so the brothers end up just doing away with him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in jail. He gets forgotten about in jail. In a couple of those scenes, it says the Lord is with him, like deep right in the midst of his suffering. And at the end of the story, he ends up being the prime minister of Egypt. And the whole thing is so that he can save those brothers that turned on him from a famine and spare the family, which is going to become Israel to continue the story that's going to lead to Jesus when they go back to Israel. And at the end of that story, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You did it, but God did it. And that's how he sees all his suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. And that's hard. What kind of God ordains that his children would suffer? I think about this. What type of parent is going to allow their children to suffer? Parents, do you ever allow your children to suffer? You do. You do. You ever discipline your kids? 
There's some self-induced suffering. You ever let your kids experience some things that are going to be hard for them because you know they need to experience some things. Like, this is not all what God does, but like we, we know what that's like. Um, I created some controlled suffering this week. I have a, a child that was having a hard time learning a particular lesson that we've tried to teach in various ways. So I decided to up the ante and create some controlled suffering now to avoid some out of control suffering later. You know, uh, we do that. That's one of my lines as a parent. There's some lessons in life you are going to learn one way or the other. You can either learn them now from the person that loves you the most, or you can learn them later from dispassionate circumstances that don't care about you at all. And your goal as a parent is to get them to learn those lessons early. Uh, this is almost an aside, but I was getting my tires changed the other day. And so it, I'm just, I'm in the waiting room alone. And this guy comes in and he's got, he's eaten. I don't know what all he was eating, but yogurt was a part of it. And he didn't like close his mouth in the least to eat that yogurt. And so he's like, just constantly Drive, like drove me nuts and I'm working on my message, you know, and I'm thinking if your mom and dad had created more suffering for you earlier in life, it would have saved a lot of people, a lot of suffering, including me right now, later. Um, what's hard about this message is I don't, I know what some of you are going through and I know I can't speak to it all individually. And so I know, I know, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it later, but by God's sovereign over your suffering. This is, a, this is a line that I won't throw out a lot in specific. I'll be real careful with this. You know, I think people can overuse this. But in Romans 8, we know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it goes on to talk about how God predestined people. Like it, it's in context of God's sovereignty. Uh, how many times have you heard someone say, I hated going through that, but I wouldn't change a thing now because I grew so much as a result of it. And you think, I would have changed it, you know? <laughs> but they are the ones that went through it. Suffering draws us closer to God like nothing else can. Um, so this is Second Corinthians. This is Paul. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt... We had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Things were so bad for us in Asia that we were like beyond our capability. We despaired of life, which people think that may have meant that they were suicidal and thought we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Um. You hear that line, I didn't know Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Nobody learned that the easy way. You know, nobody ever like volunteered for that one. They went through hard times. We're made to walk with God and be closer to God. But like in our heart, we really want to be on our own and we want to be in control. And he, he uses suffering to drive us to himself. Um, I'm going to step this up or deeper for just a second. What do you, what do you, like, you got to ask yourself this question later. What do you want more? Do you want your comfort or do you want Jesus? Like, what do you really want more? To be comfortable or to have Jesus? Do you see um, Jesus as a way for you to get, like, really, like, you got to think through this deeper. So if you don't get it, don't worry about it. But if you get it, think about it later. Do you see Jesus as a way to 
get better circumstances, to be more comfortable as a means to manipulating circumstances? Or do you see, do you more see your circumstances as an opportunity for God to draw you closer to Jesus? Because I think the real temptation is to think if I follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. When God says the circumstances are a way for me to drive you closer to Jesus. Um, Another thing in this, Paul's suffering didn't come as a result of his sin, but as a result of his obedience. Paul's suffering in this situation didn't come from his disobedience. It came from his obedience. I was having this conversation with someone the other, and I never thought about it like this before, but early in your walk with Jesus, a lot of your suffering is like self-induced suffering in that it's the, it's the result of your time of rebellion against the way when you, against the Lord, when you weren't trusting the Lord and you made bad decisions. And so there's just natural consequences that come from that, but you walk with Jesus and he's going to draw you into circumstances in this world. You're going to have trouble. He promised you that to where you're going to experience some suffering, not as a result of your disobedience, but as a result of your obedience. You're not necessarily going to suffer less as you grow in Christ. You may suffer more because he's called you to be like him and he wants to draw you closer to him. Um, And so that's next. You become more like Christ as you suffer. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he was rich, became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. Jesus gave up his riches and his glory in heaven to walk among us on earth and be cold, dirty, and hungry, and to be taunted and uh, mocked and beaten and killed on our behalf so that we who are poor could become rich. And then he tells us to become like him. Well, you want to become more like Jesus. That's not going to be easy because being Jesus wasn't easy. And so there's going to be some suffering that comes along with losing your life in order to save your life because that's what Jesus told us it was going to be like. Um, Pivoting a little bit. You can choose how you respond to suffering. How do we typically respond to suffering? You respond well to suffering? No. We resist We complain, we ignore, we isolate, maybe we panic, we retreat. Here's what James says, and this is hard, y'all. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That might be one of the hardest verses in the Bible. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. But know that God is at work in it. It at least tells us, like, we have options in how we respond to suffering. And recognizing that God is in it. Um, Just a couple more. One, you should not suffer alone. I'm not even going to say anything about that. The whole last series was really about not suffering alone. And God's given us the church that we don't have to suffer alone. So reach out to somebody if you're in the middle of suffering or in the middle of your suffering, because everybody at some level is going through something and don't suffer alone. And then your suffering will end. Um, Your suffering will end. I think we don't like suffering because we weren't built to suffer. I mean, that's the way the story goes, that we weren't made for this. Uh, suffering is the result of sin and Jesus came from heaven to earth to defeat sin. And that's the message of Easter. First Corinthians 15 in Christ, if in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Um, we have confidence that our suffering is going to end because that's why Jesus came from heaven to earth is to suffer on our behalf and then to show us that he has defeated the power of sin and death in the tomb by rising from the dead. Do you go through your suffering with the perspective because this is what our faith is for. If in this life we have hope in Christ, or we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are to be pitied. It's not just about this life, it's about the next. About the hope of an eternity with God where every tear is wiped away, where there's no suffering. Do you suffer in light of what Christ has done for you? Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. People are suffering alongside you and people would be willing to suffer with you and walk with you through whatever it is that you're going through. This will not be the end. God knows whatever it is that you're going through and God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. The, um, the last time we see Mary is in the book of Acts. So we don't see her after Jesus rises from the dead, interact with Jesus. Who knows? Um, But after Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples to go to the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they go up there and it says that they're up there waiting and it lists who's there and it lists the 12 disciples. And then it says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Which tells us whatever she went through, it wasn't the end. She persevered. She held to her faith. She kept her hope and she made it. She made it. And you will too. Um, I'm gonna, Jake's going to come back up. We have a few more songs to sing. We have the, um, the bread and the cup set up. And so if you have accepted who Christ is and what Christ has done on your behalf, he has told you to do this in remembrance of him. And so we invite you during these next few songs um, to come up here and remember the gospel. To remember that we have a God who, though he was rich, became poor, that we who are poor might become rich. And a God who has defeated the power of sin and death, who has suffered alongside us, but then overcome our suffering. Father, thanks for um, the gospel. Thanks for this picture of Mary. Lord, thanks uh, that there's so many places in the Bible where you demonstrate to us that we are not alone in the ways that we suffer, that you know what we're going through when we suffer, that you are in control, Lord, even though we suffer, and that you will use it to draw us closer to you and to grow. God, would you give us faith to see it in that way, Lord, and to cling to you as we're going through it. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.